0: I guess we're still hot. Mark, I want to mute us please?
1: with the angels I love to hear children praying I love to see weak made strong but most of all I love to hear the voice of God I hear the prayers of the prayers I hear the songs in the silence, I see the joy of the dancers, and all the healing they bring, but most of all, I love to hear the voice of God, most of all, I love to hear the voice of God. He is the giver of And open and see your glory come down. We long to hear words eternal, forever changing our hearts. And if you'd come, we'd love to hear your voice, oh God. To hear your voice, oh God I love you, Lord Oh, your mercy never fails me All my days I've been held in your hand From the moment that I wake up Until I lay my head (laughs) I will sing Of the goodness of God, I love your voice. You have led me through the fire and darkest nights. You are close like no other. I've known you as a father, I've known you as a friend, and I have lived. The goodness of God all my life you have been faithful all my life you have been so so goodness of God. Sing your goodness is running after me. Your goodness is running after, running after me. Your goodness is running after, running after me. With my life laid down, I'm surrendered now. I give you This is running after running after Okay, He's God. God. <laughs> Praise you, Jesus. Thank you. We love you, and we acknowledge you are God, mm-hmm. and you are so good. Bless this morning. Bless this word going forth, and uh, give us ears to hear, and hearts to obey. In the name of Jesus.
0: Amen. 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 All right. Good morning. I just have to say, this is so much better getting to be with you and see you in person rather than just trying to talk to a camera in the back. And I know that there are some of you, many of you actually, who are watching from home right now and just know that we have been praying for you. Um, I look forward to getting to see you in person as well, but really, really grateful that we get to still continue to connect this morning. And I hope that your 2022 is off to a really wonderful start, or at least a better start than ours is. Um, already in, t- in the first week of 2022, uh, our whole staff got sick. So they've been out, and thankfully it happened mostly over the course of that break between Christmas and New Year's. So we've pretty much kind of come through all of that, but our whole staff is getting better. And then on Monday, we accidentally deleted our website as a church. I didn't even know you could do that. But uh, apparently, when you delete administrators, that also deletes whatever the administrator did, and so we deleted. Nope, don't worry about it. doesn't matter who did it. It happened. It's kind of fun because that tells me, and then then also, on top of that, and we were able to get it back, by the way, which is really good. I'm very grateful for people who understand that technical stuff. On top of that, I come in this morning, and I go up to our, our tech crew up in front, and they are taking apart all of the cables because if something can go wrong, it's going wrong right now. And the only thing I can attribute it to is the study that we're going to begin on today. It really feels like the enemy is working overtime to try to to thwart what God has got planned for our church. And I'm really excited about it. But before I dive into that, I do want to let you know about one thing. When you came in this morning, on top of your uh, bulletin that you were given. There was also this page with pictures of two couples from our church, Glenn and Ann Owen. He's the one who was just singing up here. That's Glenn, not Ann. And then Russell and Alini Toller. Alini is the, the woman who designed our whole Christmas look super grateful for her. And her husband, Russell, helps across the street with our third through fifth graders every week pouring into them. And I'm really grateful for this couple. The reason I'm introducing you to them is they are our elder nominees. Glenn and Russell are our elder nominees for 2022. And I'm excited about both of them because both of them and both of these couples have invested themselves in our church for years and years. The Owens have been here much longer than I have. And Russell and Alini represent this new generation of leaders that God is raising up in our church. And they are two couples that I feel very confident about having step into the leadership with me, with Jeff, with Bill. And so I'm letting you know about this because if you are a crew member of Lighthouse Community Church, you have the right to vote on them, because that's our senior leadership is our elder team, as well as our budget, which I'm going to be posting next week. Um, Those are the kind of things that you guys have an opportunity to speak into. Um, And if you don't know what I mean by a crew member, I talked at length about what that means last week. And I know that we weren't here in person, but it's on our website. You just go to lighthousecommunity.com, or if you're watching from home, it's just the week previously's video. I would strongly encourage you to watch it because, in that, I lay out who we are as a church and where we're going, what really drives us. And, in a word, what drives us is making disciples. We are about making fully committed followers of Jesus Christ who are growing in our relationship with God, doing life with one another so that we can ultimately radiate the hope that we've found in Jesus into our spheres of influence, into our neighborhoods into our workplaces, into our schools, for those of us who are still going to school, and into our, the families that God has placed us in. That's what we're called to do and be, is ambassadors of hope, but it happens through first and foremost being a follower of Jesus. So that's what we're gonna be about. And if you missed last week, I would, just, I would ask you to take the time to go back and listen to it. It's only about 30 minutes long. It's worth your time, because it'll give you an idea of where we're headed, as a church and what I'm inviting you into. And if at the end of that you say, yeah, we're in, then you have the right to vote at the end of January on our elder nominees as well as um, our budget and things like that. Now, uh, that's what I laid out last week. And the big question that that raises is, okay, so how do we do this? How are we this year going to help each of us, myself, you and anybody else who calls Lighthouse home, how are we going to help ourselves grow as fully committed followers or disciples of Jesus Christ? And originally, what I anticipated, if you had asked me that question three months ago, I would have said, well, we're going to really knuckle down on what it means to be worshipers. Because when we are following somebody, we're ordering our life around Jesus, we begin to every element of our life begins to be shaped by him and when we worship something what we're ultimately doing is saying you are worth ordering my life around and so as you'll begin to see worship and discipleship go hand in hand so my plan was we were going to do a study on what it means to be worshipers not just on sunday mornings but in every moment of every day of our lives however about three months ago, I started hearing whispers from life group leaders and others in our church, hey, Eric, it would be really good if we do, could do a study on Revelation. Eric, it would be really good if we could, if we could just get into Revelation. Eric, we would really love to, to study Revelation. And my first inclination was, heck no, not interested. In fact, I, I remember vividly sitting down with Jeannie. Where are you at? I know you, I heard you. Oh, she, just, she just walked out. Awesome. <laughs> I could talk about her. She won't hear. I was sitting down with Jeannie in my office about three months ago. And she said, hey, Eric, if so many of the life groups and people in our church are asking to study Revelation, maybe you should just postpone your other study and pivot and and study Revelation. And I straight up looked at her with absolute confidence and said, that's not going to happen. And I had very good reasons for saying that. First off was I understood that part of what was driving people to ask for a study of Revelation is that there was this very strongly held belief as they were looking around at the world as we are experiencing it right now, looking at what we've endured over the last two, two and a half years, and they came away with the conclusion, (gasps) we're in the end times! I need to know how we should proceed and how things are going to play out. And in a way, they're right. We are in the end times. But the difference is I knew that we've been in the end times since Jesus took on flesh and ultimately walked to the cross. We've been in the end times for the last 2,000 years. The only reason why suddenly we feel more and more like we're in the end times is because we're beginning to experience it ourselves personally here. It feels like some of the parameters have been put on us or the fact that we couldn't meet for a season and things like that felt a little bit like those constraints. That's persecution, oh my goodness. And because of that, we've concluded that now suddenly we're in the end times. And I think that that says more about our American arrogance than it does about what's really going on we have this tendency to think that it doesn't really count until we start feeling it ourselves. But I will remind you, yes, we're in the end times, but we have been in the end times for the last 2,000 years. Secondly, I know that Revelation is arguably the most contentious book in the entire Bible. It has driven massive disagreements between really well-meaning Christ followers who, who study God's word diligently, and they come away with different perspectives. And we are already in arguably the most contentious season of life from in my lifetime, probably for many of your lifetimes. This feels like the most contentious season of life. So why on earth would, would I want to lead us into a book that can so easily drive dissension and contentiousness and disagreement and and upset feelings. And so my first impulse was what I said to Jeannie, that's not going to happen. And immediately as those words were coming off my lips, I felt this check in my spirit as if the Holy Spirit was saying to me, "Oh, oh, you're talking for me now. Is that right? Why are you going to completely dismiss a book of the Bible In fact, a really important book of the Bible, simply because you're afraid of it. Simply because you don't understand it completely. Why are you going to dismiss it? And so in that moment, in that conversation with Jeannie, I backed off of that very strong claim. I said, okay, you know what? i tell you what, I'll pray about it. Which is a really good pastoral answer. But I meant it. (laughs) And I did it. I began to pray. Out of that conversation, I began to pray about whether or not to do it, and I began to read the the letter of Revelation, and I began to reach out to some of my trusted friends and mentors, other pastors, and say, hey, what have been books that have been really helpful for you in your understanding and your journey through Revelation? And ultimately, here's what ended up happening, is I began to realize that this book that I was afraid of, I don't need to be afraid of it. As I began to understand what John is doing, as I began to understand what was actually going on that prompted him to write what he wrote, as I began to dig into it, I went from being afraid of it to being excited about it because I was finding it was giving me so much hope personally. And I began to become convinced that as much as I wanted to say, we're not going to do it, this is exactly where we need to go, because this is a letter, rather than just giving us a blueprint for how the end times are going to play out so that we can figure out what chapter of Revelation we're on today, it it is a letter written to a people who are under pressure from the power brokers in their day to conform in order to get along, and it's a letter written to encourage them not to give up or lose hope. And I, and I can't tell you how important and how relevant this letter is to us in the 21st century, even though we need to remember, whenever we go to read it, that it was first and foremost written to believers living in the first century. And so if we want to correctly understand and interpret this letter, we first need to ask ourselves, what did it mean to them, so that we can then step back and say, okay, now how does this speak to us in our context? Does that make sense? I mean, that's, that's Biblical Interpretation 101. We can't simply rip it out of their context and say, hey, we don't care about that. What does it say to us? We first have to ask, what did it mean to them? And in light of that, what does it say to us? And now how shall we live in light of that? I'm going to today stay a little bit closer to my notes because I have a ton that I want to get through and I don't want to be here for four hours. So. First thing we need to ask ourselves is what was going on in the first century that prompted John, the beloved disciple uh, who wrote the gospel of John, And, and although there are some differing perspectives on who wrote, both myself and Bill and many other theologians strongly believe that it was the beloved disciple John who wrote the letter of Revelation. But what was going on that prompted John to write that letter when he wrote it to whom he wrote it? Well, we believe that it was written sometime around 95, 96 AD during the reign of Caesar Domitian. Caesar Domitian was the Roman emperor that oversaw the Roman empire and the people he was, that John was writing this letter to resided under the heavy hand of a Roman emperor in modern day Turkey, which was known as Asia Minor at that time. He was writing to believers there. And already, at the time of his writing, believers had been enduring over 30 years of persecution at the hand of their Roman occupiers. 30 years. It started in 64 AD, when there was a massive fire that ripped through Rome, destroying an entire section of the city. And although historians and many of the people in the city pointed to Nero who was the the Caesar at the time, and said, hey, you lit this fire. You intentionally made sure this fire happened because, and this is what ended up happening, he wanted to build a nice uh, palace to himself over that area that burned down. He turned around, he had to pass the buck somewhere, so he turned around and he blamed Christians, this kind of random sect that had come out of Judaism, blamed them for lighting the fire. Persecution began. You had believers who were arrested, thrown to the lions in the Colosseum to to kind of uh, be a distraction for the people. You had Christians who were crucified all over the place. And persecution only got worse. It didn't get better even after Nero died. In 70 AD, after some Jews in Jerusalem rose up and tried to throw off the yoke of Rome, one of the Roman emperors, lashed out really hard. His name was Titus and he ended up conquering Jerusalem. Um, Not yet. That's that's Domitian. He ended up conquering Jerusalem and burning the temple in Jerusalem. So the, the temple that we read about that Jesus went and visited was burned to the ground. And when we go and visit it today, all that remains is the retaining wall that was there to hold the temple mount property together. The entire temple was destroyed. Around that time also, Paul was crucified. Peter was crucified. Timothy, who was the kind of pastor over the church in Ephesus, was murdered. And so the beloved disciple John moves to to Ephesus and kind of takes over the reins of leading the the church there. And it's in this area that when now Domitian, comes on the scene. After Titus, Domitian comes on the scene. And rather than getting better, it got worse under this man because he was a very insecure leader. So insecure, in fact, that it wasn't enough that people worshipped the cult of the Caesar. It wasn't enough that people had temples built and worshipped Caesars who had died as God. He wanted to be worshipped as God. He wanted temples built not just to the cult of Caesar, but to him specifically. And so he commissioned temples where people would be forced to worship him specifically. He went by the name, and this was the actual name that people had to call him, Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. People were expected to refer to him as that very lofty title, Lord and God. And in these temples, he expected that when people would come into a city like Ephesus, where there was a temple built to the worship of Caesar Domitian, the first thing they would do when they got to the city is they would go to the temple of Domitian, they would take a pinch of incense, and they would throw it on the brazier, and as they were dropping the incense on the brazier, they would say, Caesar is Lord. This was the act of worship that every single Roman citizen needed to do before they could go shopping in the in the. In the you know, public courts. Before they could go on with their life, they needed to go and pay their homage to Caesar Domitian. Now, for the majority of Roman citizens, that wasn't a big deal. I mean, they already worshipped a pantheon of gods. What was one more god in that litany of other gods? But for Christ followers, this was a really big deal. Hey, honor Caesar? Sure. He's he's the person that happens to hold the the reins. And so we can honor him, but worship him? No, that's that's a couple of steps too far. And because of this, Christians were persecuted even more stringently because they refused to take the pinch of incense. They refused to bend a knee and worship Caesar Domitian. And so Christians were again arrested, They were persecuted. They lost jobs. People began to, if they owned a shop, people said, we're not going to shop there anymore. They were, again, thrown to lions. They were crucified. One of those Christ followers who refused to bend a knee and take the pinch of incense and worship Caesar as Lord is John, the beloved disciple, who at the time was basically like the, the elder statesman, overseeing the churches in Asia Minor. So Ephesus and Pergamum and Smyrna and all of the cities that the book of Revelation is addressed to, he was kind of an elder statesman helping oversee and give direction to them. And he refused to take the pinch of incense. He refused to worship Caesar as Lord. But for whatever reason, some of the Roman officials decided that to simply crucify or murder John Given how old he was, given how important he was to the church, to murder him would have made him into a martyr. And martyrs stir up personal convictions and people might revolt because of that. And so instead of flirting with the idea of making him a martyr, let's just get rid of him. And so what they did is they decided to exile him to the island of Patmos. Which was a prison island. It's similar to what Alcatraz was back in the day. Ten miles off the coast of Asia Minor, about ten miles away from the port of Ephesus, was this little island called Patmos. And I used to think that when we talked about John being exiled, they just put him in a rowboat and pushed him to the beach, right? And he then got to sit under a palm tree with coconuts and stuff like that, and he just kind of hung out every day. That's not what Patmos was, it was a penal colony. There were rock quarries that slaves went to and had to work day in and day out. They were worked to death on this island. And John is an old man. He's in his 80s at this point. And he's sent there, and he probably wasn't working the rock quarries, but he was sent there to rot away, just to silence him, because the Roman authorities did not want this man encouraging other Christians to refuse to take the pinch of incense and to refuse to worship Caesar. And it's from this island that John writes this letter, the final letter, the longest letter in the New Testament. It's the letter of Revelation. Go ahead and turn there with me. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. Today really is more giving background so that we can understand what it is we hold. In the coming weeks, we're going to do more of the line-by-line and really digging into this. But I'm trying to give us some historical context so that we can begin to understand and make sense of what we're reading. We have to ask the question, what is Revelation? First off, it's a letter, and it's a letter written from John, who is a pastor to the churches that he had responsibility for, to this, to the believers living in this region. But it is also, as the first line of Revelation tells us, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that word revelation in Greek is apocalypse. That's what the actual word is. When we say revelation, what, we're, what we could also say is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now, when I say the word apocalypse, what initially comes to mind? Destruction. Destruction. What else? War. War. Fire. Death. Right? Everything we, we watch in... in you know, any of these action movies anymore is um, the, the death and destruction and the end of life as we know it. That's what we think of when we think of apocalypse. Because that's what the word has come to mean in the 21st century, but that is absolutely not what the word meant to the first century hearers who would have heard that this is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Because for them, apocalypse meant something very different from death, destruction, and war. It meant The unveiling or the revealing, hence the word revelation, is the revealing of Jesus Christ. So what is it revealing? Well, revelation, as we're going to talk about in a little bit, uses a lot of metaphor, uses a lot of imagery, uses words and pictures that seem radical. So you have people who are represented as animals, whether it be lambs, lions, dragons, beasts. You have historical events being represented as massive cataclysms of hurricanes and earthquakes and tsunamis. You have colors that are symbols of something. You have numbers that are symbolic. The number 7, the number 10, the number 12, the number 144,000, the number 666. None of these things are intended to be taken literally. They're intended to be symbolic, pointing beyond themselves to something else, something greater. Well, what are they pointing to? What the heck is the apocalypse of Jesus attempting to unveil or reveal? Two things in in particular. First thing is it's attempting to ground the pain of our present reality, the pain that we are enduring, in light of a future reality. Moms, those of you who have given birth to a child, remember when you're in the midst of your contractions and you have these painful contractions that you have to breathe through and push through. Imagine a mother in the midst Of a contraction, as she's just one's just ended, another one she knows is coming. She's just trying to catch her breath, and the midwife leans down and says, "Don't stop. You know what this pain is producing. You know how this ends. Something good is going to come from this pain. So don't give up." That's the same kind of thing that the revelation of Jesus Christ is attempting to do. It's attempting to remind us that the pain that we are experiencing in the present has a purpose and we know that something far greater is coming so don't give up or lose heart in the moment. So that's the first thing. That's the prophetic part that tries to point beyond the present moment to something greater that is coming. But what it also does just as importantly if not more importantly is is the second purpose which is to ground to kind of pull back the curtain on our present reality at least what we can see to expose what is really going on in the spiritual realm all of us in here have probably watched at some point the movie the wizard of oz right there's that moment when dorothy walks into with her retinue she walks into the, the the room of the great and powerful wizard of Oz. You remember that moment? And and they they are faced with this literal disembodied head that is green with smoke coming up and, and, and peals of lightning and this voice that is overwhelming to them. And how do they respond in that moment when they're faced with that face? They're terrified, aren't they? They cower in fear because he is so great and powerful. And then Toto, wonderful Toto, goes over and he pulls back the curtain and he exposes a little old man who's working some controls and suddenly Dorothy and the cowardly lion and the tin man and the straw man all realize that the great and powerful Wizard of Oz is not nearly as great and powerful as he purports himself to be. And in that moment, their entire countenance changes. Their attitude towards him changes. They're no longer scared of the big head. They turn to this guy and they are, they take a more active, more kind of strong approach and he's the one who is now cowering. In the same way, John's revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ seeks to pull back the curtain on our present reality and on the present reality of those who are living under the heavy hand of the great and powerful Caesar of Rome so that they can begin to recognize that he is not nearly as great and powerful as he purports himself to be. That they don't need to be as afraid of him. Even if he has the ability to take their life, he cannot touch their spiritual eternity. They know who holds their future. And it's not Caesar Domitian. Now, the only difference between the Wizard of Oz and our reality, as John is writing, is that we're in the Wizard of Oz, it's just an old man, and there is nobody who's great and powerful who is deserving of our reverential respect. In our circumstances, there is. There is one who is worthy to be worshipped and to be revered and to be feared, but it is not Caesar Domitian. The one whom we, who is deserving of our worship, his name is Jesus. And that is the point of this entire letter If if I were to simply try to sum up the whole heart of what John is attempting to do in the letter of revelation that he wrote to Christians living in these seven cities and all of the surrounding areas, it is to lead them to a point of a decision. Who are you going to worship? Who are you going to follow? Who is deserving of your life? Who is deserving of your trust? Who is deserving of your reverential fear? The the one who sits on the throne of a, a terrestrial kingdom or the one who sits on the throne of heaven? Who truly is Lord and God? I will confess to you, I will agree with you, that revelation can be very confusing there's a reason why when Jeannie suggested that we study it as a church my first thought is uh-uh part of the reason was it's really confusing and there's a lot of good reasons why it's confusing the first reason it's confusing is because it's written in a way that we are not used to reading apocalyptic languages or apocalyptic literature as i've already explained approaches reality in a very different way. It uses pictures and metaphors to paint images that elicit something and help us get to the heart of what's really going on. But it does so using humans represented as animals and numbers being symbolic and colors being symbolic and and great cataclysms being more representative of, of things going on in life. And so it can be very, very confusing at first reading because we may not understand it. Why on earth would John write in that way as opposed to John simply coming out and saying, hey guys, Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is. Don't worship Caesar, worship Jesus. You have to remember the context that he was writing in. John's not sitting in his home in the city of Ephesus, able to have people take his letter and distribute it to the churches. John is sitting on a prison island 10 miles off the coast of Asia Minor. If he hopes that anything he writes will get into the hands of believers on the mainland, they've got to pass through the hands of his Roman guards. And that means he can't simply come out and say what he means specifically He's got to write in a way that the guards can't understand what he's writing, but those that he's writing to can. And so, one reason why he chooses to write in this apocalyptic way is it's almost like a secret language. It's almost like it's written in code, which of course then asks the question, well, how would his audience, his his intended recipients, have made sense of this? What's the cipher? that they can begin then to make sense of it. And the the cipher is the Old Testament. They were familiar with the Old Testament, whereas the Roman guards were not. And so much of this letter is pointing back to examples of Old Testament moments because, by the way... (coughs) Uh, Revelation is not the first example that we get of apocalyptic language. There are actually four different books in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Zechariah, Daniel, um, I'm missing one, but that's okay, um, and Ezekiel, there we go. And then, the, and then in the New Testament, Matthew 24, all of those are examples of apocalyptic language. And over and over and over again as John writes and as John has these images that he sees and he begins to write them down, it's pointing back to the Old Testament. In fact, somebody took the time to count up the amount of references in the book of Revelation to the Old Testament. There are only 404 verses in the book of Revelation. And there are over 500 references to the Old Testament. So... If you want to understand this letter that we're going to be reading, you need to be familiar with the Old Testament. And I, I understand that many of you are not. And so part of my job and part of Bill's job and part of Jeff's job when we come up to teach is to help make these connections so that we can begin to understand what it is <clears throat> that we're reading. Another reason that the book of Revelation can be so unbelievably confusing at first read is because we tend to approach it as if it is linear, as if it's written from first this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and this is going to happen, then this will happen, then this is what will happen. And many of the times that we try to make sense of kind of the, the prophetic parts of Revelation, we try to approach it as if it's linear, as if it's laid out like a this is first, then this and this, then this, then this. But that's not how John is writing. John doesn't write first this happens, then this happens, then this happens. John is writing what he sees in the order that he sees it. First I saw this. Then I saw this. Then I saw this. Next I saw this. And I will just tell you up front, John doesn't always understand what it is he's seeing. He actually multiple times asks the angel that's kind of walking with him and guiding him on this, this uh, vision quest, like, what is that? What does this mean? I don't understand this. Which actually gives me a lot of hope because I don't understand a lot of what I'm reading either. So it may, it's nice to know that even John, the guy who's writing this, didn't fully understand it. And it is okay when you read Revelation to come away with questions. But, Here's what I can tell you, and here's where where Bill and myself and Jeff are really going to help us lean in, is to understand that a lot of times when he's giving these prophecies, a lot of times it's kind of cyclical, where it will will give a perspective on this and and what plays out, and then it'll come back and it'll show it again from a different perspective. And part of our job is going to help us understand kind of how this may play out. But I am going to ask you, because I know that there are some of you in this room who have spent more time studying Revelation than I have. I recognize that there are some of you in this room who have sat under others, who have attempted to open this up and explain what it means. And you are now invested in your perspective. I'm going to ask you to do what I am doing, what Jeff is doing, and what Bill is doing, and that is to hold our perspective loosely. Because a lot of times we can get an idea of what it means and grip the fingers of our heart around it so tightly that we have an inability to let it go. And this is where revelation begins to become divisive is when we start holding on to our interpretation of something even though we, like John, are trying to make sense of something that isn't fully understandable and we're attempting to press it into our reality, into the 21st century in such a way that sometimes, I mean, you have to understand that there are believers, really well-meaning followers of Jesus Christ, who have an interpreted Revelation to speak directly into their experience in that moment. And it does speak to them in that moment, but they attempt as if John wrote it only for them. The best example I can give you, and this is when Bill shared this with me, it, it made me laugh. And this isn't in my notes; I'm kind of off a little bit. But this, in 2008, Bill happened to find himself in um, in what is it, Las Vegas? He was pastoring out there. And around that time, the president of the United States at the time, who, who was Barack Obama, made a statement that, "Hey, if you guys are going to have these large conventions, don't do it in Vegas." do it in Chicago, do it in other places, there are so many other better places to do it than in Las Vegas. And almost overnight, the convention business in Las Vegas shut down. And when somebody counted up the impact that that statement from the President of the United States had on the city of Las Vegas, they found that 144,000 people had lost their jobs. You want to guess what happened next? (gasps) 144,000! Wait a minute! There's 144,000 saints! John wrote Revelation for us! And every single church in the city began to clamor to study Revelation. Was Revelation for believers living in Las Vegas in 2008? Yes! But it was first and foremost for believers living in Asia Minor in the first century. Was it for believers living under the hand of, you know, Obama and the United States government? Yes! But first and foremost, it was for believers who were living under the heavy hand of Caesar Domitian. Can we please be humble enough to hold our interpretations loosely so that we don't do damage to this and try to force it? In an... Can we just stop being arrogant Americans who think that everything is written only for us? Please just for a minute. And, and this is something I have to battle against as well. Okay, so how are we going to approach this? A couple of things that we're going to do differently. First off, I recognize that 45 minutes on a Sunday morning is not nearly enough. We're gonna to try to do about 15 weeks to go through the book of Revelation on Sunday mornings. I can promise you that that is not nearly enough time to do the whole thing justice. And so where I'm going to focus on Sunday mornings is the first five chapters of Revelation and the last four chapters of Revelation. And that leaves a big chunk in the middle that is some of the more difficult to understand stuff where we're not going to spend an immense amount of time. We're actually going to try to do an overview of that on one Sunday morning. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute. That's like the really good stuff that everybody argues about. And you're like, yeah, everybody argues about that. So we're not going to unpack that on Sunday mornings. We're going to unpack that on Wednesday evenings. Many of you are in life groups, and if you're not in a life group, you're missing the absolute best thing that Lighthouse has to offer you. But what we are going to do on Wednesday nights is that we are going to begin a Bible study in this room from 7 to 8.30. Pastor Bill is going to lead that conversation. We're going to begin by unpacking the conversations we have on the weekends. And then when we get to that middle section, chapters 6 through 18, he's going to kind of disconnect from where we're going in our conversations, because I'm trying to finish Revelation before we hit Easter, and Pastor Bill is going to lean more into those big questions in the middle, like what, a, what about the seven bowls, and what about the seven um, you know, uh, seals, and all that kind of stuff, and the trumpets, and what does that mean? And, and Pastor Bill is going to help navigate some of that during that Wednesday night Bible study. So if you have questions, if you want to dive deeper, Wednesday night from 7 to 8.30 is your time to do it. It's your opportunity to ask lots of questions. And I understand that right now, given what we're going through, some of you may not be able to be here in person. So that's why we're doing it in this room as opposed to across the street so that we can live stream it at the same time. It will be live streamed as that Bible study for those of you who aren't able to be here in person. Secondly, we have these binders that you may have seen when you came in. We recognize that there are some of you who really want to dive deeply in this and take your study of it seriously and have something that you can kind of hold on to these so it's not just a lot of information every week and then you don't know what to do with it. So Jeannie has put these binders together. Um, On the back is a map so you can kind of see the the different sitters. There's some uh, note space here and then we are hole-punching the bulletin so that you can take your notes from Sunday and stick it in there. Pastor Bill will have additional notes that he will give on Wednesday nights, and you can put those in here as well. Our goal is to equip you to be able to study this book and get the most out of it, and and you're only going to get out as much as you're willing to put in. My hope is that you don't wait for Sunday mornings, and you don't wait for Wednesday nights to grapple with this letter. My hope is that you are grappling with it throughout the week, that you are reading it and and prayerfully just kind of sitting and digesting. And as you do so, I would encourage you to ask two questions. First, what encourages me? What inspires me from reading this? And then secondly, what confuses me? And it is okay if the vast majority of what you are writing down is what confuses you. I would expect that for most of us, most of what you're going to be writing down are questions. Wednesday night becomes a really wonderful place to begin to process through them. Thirdly, there are an immense amount of books that are written on the letter of Revelation. A ton of them. Myself and Bill have read a lot of them. I've got a stack about this high on my desk across the street. I chose not to bring that across. Instead, I chose to bring one book. Of all the books that I have found and I have read on the, the letter of Revelation to make sense of it, the very best one, and this is actually one that I found from my friend Bill Dogtrum, who is a mentor of mine, is a professor at Vanguard University. I asked him, "What's the, what are the best, like, three books that you've I had This was one of them and as I read it I would go, I see why you love this so much. The book is called Discipleship on the Edge. It's written by a guy named Daryl Johnson. I highly recommend this for any of you who really want to do a deep dive. This book more than any of the other books that I have access to will probably be shaping a lot of the conversations we have. He has spent a lot more time studying and reading than I have the time to do that Bill has the time to do. Bill and I and Jeff are going to be processing ahead of each week. We are not just going to regurgitate what's in this, but if you want a place to start, I strongly recommend Discipleship on the Edge by Daryl Johnson. And if you happen to have um, Amazon Prime, you can actually get it for free on that, which is pretty cool. Um, So there you have that. That's what we are going, that's how we are going to build a foundation for us to make sense of this over the next 15 weeks. I'm very excited about this because as we get into Revelation, you're going to find it's not something we have to be scared about. It's something that speaks directly to us here and now. And so with that very lengthy intro, are you guys ready to read our first verses of Revelation? Let's do that. Let's actually get into it. Whew, okay. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the word of this prophecy. Yes. And blessed are those of you who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, now introducing himself, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve His God and Father. To Him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of Him. So shall it be amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega. This is not John speaking. This is Jesus, our Lord. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's who's speaking to us. That is who is giving us this revelation through the intermediary of John, the beloved disciple who is sitting on the island of Patmos. And the message that it gives us this morning is that Jesus is coming. He has been coming in for 2,000 years. His kingdom has been entering into our reality, breaking into a world that has lots of other petty power brokers and lots of other so-called kingdoms who are backed by a spiritual enemy who thinks that the world belongs to him. And so, as Jesus' kingdom begins to press into our reality, as Jesus comes, the world pushes back, and that creates pressure. And what you and I experience every day, what we've been experiencing for the last several years, what believers have been experiencing for the last 2,000 years, is the friction between kingdoms colliding, between the kingdom of God that is breaking in as Jesus continues to come and the kingdoms of this world that resist, and you and I find ourselves in between, pushed, pressured to conform by the the kingdoms of this world and the power brokers of this world, pressured to bend a knee, pressured to worship them and put our hope in them, because if we will simply trust them and call them Lord, they'll take care of us, they'll provide for us, they will protect us. And what we are going to be reminded of again and again and again as we go through this letter is that they are not worthy of our worship, Jesus is, because they are not Lord and God. Jesus is. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is. May we choose Him this day. May we be the kind of people whose lives reflect that hope that we have in Jesus so that that hope that we have as we hold one another up in community will begin to radiate into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, into our families, into our spheres of influence. Because we're disciples of Jesus, not of this world. We are ambassadors of hope, and our hope is found in Jesus, not in anything else in this world. So Father God, help yourself to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you, even now, would begin impressing upon our hearts what it looks like to begin living as a people who find our hope in you and not in anything else, although we continue to reside in this world. You are our Lord. We will worship no other. I pray that you would have your hand upon my family, this church community, that are called by your name. I pray that you would strengthen our immune systems and I pray that you would strengthen our faith in you. Because as we look around, we see a lot of things that make us nervous. We see a lot of things that feel like it's not the kingdom of God at work, but it's the kingdoms of this world. It feels like the enemy is winning. and You feel far off. And Jesus, I am grateful for the reminder that we are going to get over and again that you are not far off. You are right here with us. You never left us, and you will win. That's the hope we have. Jesus, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together.
1: I see the Lord seated on the throne. Exalted in the train of His robe Fills the temple with glory So... Oh. So Follow. those by
0: That, that's our prayer this morning. Jesus, lead on. You are our Lord. You are our Rabbi. We want to be disciples of you, following you, becoming more like you, being shaped in your image so that we can become reflections of your heart into this world, into our own little spheres of influence where you have kind of supernaturally planted us. So I'm excited. Is anybody else here excited to actually get into Revelation? Anybody in here still a little bit frightened? A little bit? We can be honest. It's okay to be a little bit frightened. I'm grateful that Jeannie acknowledges that she's a little frightened. She's little and frightened. That order. Oh, sorry. Gosh. First one of 2022. I'm sorry. Hey, if you want to really kind of take ownership of your own study, and this would be a helpful resource for you, I encourage you to grab one on your way out. Or if you're not here in person, but you can come on Wednesday to get one, I encourage you to get them. They cost us $5 to make. If you want to throw some money in the help, that's fine. Otherwise, just take one. If you would actually use it. Now, if this is only going to end up in the back of your car, please don't take one. You don't need the extra stuff back there. All right? But if you will actually use this, please. We're we're grateful to be able to offer this. I hope that you will join us on Wednesday for this continued conversation. It's going to be in here at seven o'clock. I will also mention one of the things I love that happened in 2021 is we started doing meals together on Wednesday nights, but we recognize that right now with kind of COVID blowing through Costa Mesa, probably not a good idea to sit around round tables and eating in front of one another. So for the month of January, we're going to postpone that just for the month of January. And then we'll pick that back up, God willing, in February. But we will be meeting in here so that those of you who are not yet well enough or comfortable enough being in person can join us for that Wednesday night study as well. I'm so unbelievably grateful to get to be on this adventure of following Jesus with you. Uh, If you have prayer requests or you want to let us know you were here, you're visiting for the first time, there's connection cards in the seat back in front of you. You can drop them in the white boxes on the way out. That's also where you can put your tithes and your offerings. Lighthouse Community Church, I love you guys. I'm excited for what God has in store for us this year. Now go be the church and have a wonderful day.